For this edition of our series, Artisan Interviews, we're privileged to have two highly esteemed journalists, the husband and wife team of James and Deborah Fallows. Jim Fallows, the author of numerous groundbreaking books on both national and international affairs, and the winner of some of journalism's highest awards, spent decades as the lead writer for The Atlantic. He is also a longtime friend of the Craftsmanship Initiative and serves as an editorial advisor to our multimedia magazine, Craftsmanship Quarterly. Deb Fallows has written extensively on topics such as education, families, and work for a variety of national publications. And she's been a fellow at both the Pew Research Center and the Washington, D.C.-based think tank New America. Deb and Jim recently spent four years crisscrossing the United States in a small plane, visiting dozens of small towns. The story they saw over and over was both surprising and entirely contrary to the narrative we all read about in the news. Almost everywhere they stopped, they found communities engaged in a vigorous process of economic reformation. A stunning portrait of an America reinventing itself, literally from the ground up. The Falloses have now given us a distillation of their findings, first in a 2018 book entitled Our Towns, A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America, and then in 2021 in an HBO documentary of the same name. Because their story overlaps so forcefully with the theme of our winter 2022 issue, Reviving Our Abandoned Small Towns, we snagged Jim and Deb for a sit-down interview to see if they could answer the questions we're struggling with. How can the miles of boarded-up towns in rural America use the abundant natural resources that surround them to rebuild local economies? If local businesses are rebuilt, how can they compete with Amazon and Walmart and their ever-growing presence? What mistakes did they see in some local revival efforts that other towns should avoid? And first, before even diving into these tricky questions, how do local leaders who want to go down this road even begin? The Craftsmanship Initiative's Executive Director, Todd Oppenheimer, sat down with Jim and Deborah to dig into these questions and more. One of the things that occurred to me is, well, I had two sort of main questions. The first is, at a certain point, does someone in town, you talk a lot about how you need a, a local driver, a, a you know, local hero, someone who's really got the guts. But at a certain point, do you have to sort of practice that if you build it, they will come kind of mentality? So, so I think that there is one advantage small and remote communities may have in this process of just making a big gamble and seeing what we can do, which is that they don't have the sort of bedroom community plate that many places do, that if people are living there, they're generally living there and their their families may be from there or if they're, they've chosen to come there or or whatever. Deb wrote about a, a family in uh, DeSmit, South Dakota, one that just moved there from Baltimore with their teenage and younger daughters to to have a, a new life in, in the prairie. And I think that, that the the sense of we care about this particular place by definition, you have more of those people in, in a smaller community than, than you might in suburban LA or suburban New York or, or whatever. And I think the, if you build it, they will come gamble is if you don't build it, you know, they will not come. So it's, you, you know, it's not symmetrical. You don't know they're going to come, but you know, they're not if you don't build it. And so having that saying, we're going to take the necessary, but not sufficient step of doing what we can and 
it's like anything else in life of political activities or starting a business or starting a family or anything else of that sort. And I think back to the, do you need a local hero? We've seen, maybe we've been more sensitive to lately of seeing a cluster of the local heroes working together, especially in these small towns where it seems like you need a critical mass of several dedicated people to get something going who will just kind of beat the drum and get a lot of other people on board. I think we used to think it was one person more than we think that now. I tend to think that it's a little cluster of people, which is, of course, healthier. I was seeing somebody in the in the, the, the wisdom of Twitter in the last day or two just with an aphorism saying that the aging process is less cruel if you think you've tried your best. And this, you know, that, that these towns, you know, who knows what's going to happen to them, but if they're trying their best, you know, that, that somehow there may be disappointment that comes, but it, there is some engagement and, and involvement of just being in there and, and being in the fray. So I, I think that, that it, each example of people doing that and showing a path and what they've learned makes it easier for others. We've heard that in civil rights revolutions and democratization and all the rest. So that, that is my wisdom of Twitter. George Bernard Shaw once put it this way, which animated me in my former career in the theater. He would say, an artist wants to feel thoroughly used up by the time he's thrown on the scrap heap. <laughs> and I think you could say, you know, more than artists want to feel that, you know, we as humans, we like to pit ourselves against the world and feel like we've given it our all. Another couple of advantages for these small towns occurs to me, and I'm curious if you've seen data to support it, which is that they may have a better ability to, to bring people back who have left because there's a pride of place when you grow up in a small town that I don't think you quite get in the big cities. And, you know, there's what you've written about a lot, you know, there's that Avis, we try harder thing where, you know, everybody laughs at us, we'll show them. And then there's just the, you know, my grandmother was here, my great grandmother, my dad built the post office or whatever it is. And so if they can find a reason to go back, if, if when some local visionary starts to build, you know, the new brew pub or the community arts center or whatever, is that, do those locals who've left say, Hey, wait a second, I've had enough of Boston. You know, that's a cool thing I'd like to be part of. We could not possibly agree more strongly than, than we do with that. And, and it's, I, I don't know any of the big macro data as they would call it <laughs> to support that, but certainly we, we keep seeing illustrations of this. We were in Macon, Georgia about a month ago for odd reasons. We were traveling by a little plane. We got fogged in there for a couple of days. We went to the, the birthday party of some guy who was in his mid thirties, I'd guess, who's sort of the, yeah. the head of historic Macon. And everybody around the table was somebody from that part of Georgia who'd been in Atlanta or LA or Chicago. And they thought something was happening in Macon and they were coming back there. And one of them was, was now doing electric vehicle work for the Bluebird bus company, which makes, uh, you know, school buses. And one of them had a restaurant, one of them had some remote business. And so it, I think if I had to name one of the biggest surprises of our years in the road, it's how strong the sense of fromness is. You know, we're all from the place we're from, and I think especially small towns. And as people are reconsidering with the pandemic, 
And as different kinds of work possibilities are making this possible, and you're thinking, where would I like to raise my children? Where are my, where's my family? We see this all the time. And I hope and expect that data will catch up, but certainly that is what we see. Yeah. I, I think earlier before the pandemic, we saw case by case by case of this happening. The kid from Erie, Pennsylvania, who went to San Diego, tried to get in the culinary world. It didn't work out. So she was going to come back to Erie, Pennsylvania, where they had taste like she had taste. But those stories took more of a story to make that happen. It took more bravery. It took more guts on her part to say, I didn't fail. I just need, I just, this, this isn't right. And I'm going to know, go back to where I understand it. Since the pandemic, I think it's a lot easier for people to do that. They don't need an excuse anymore. It's something you can do without feeling embarrassed or awkward that you're going home. Um, look, why should I stay in Brooklyn? I'm going back to South Dakota and just see what it's like there, at least for a little while. And then then the waves of surprises like, boy, it doesn't look anything like it looked when I left. Those stories we've heard a lot. I think there are actually data for this. Like I was talking to one woman who said, I, I work in vehicle registration in Maine and boy, all you have to do is look at all the new vehicles that are registering from wherever they were to the small town in Maine where they had a second home or where they grew up or, or where they had some kind of connection. So vehicle registration and also um, real estate. In South Dakota, they're, you know, People are selling their houses without any place to go because they're getting such good offers from people from Silicon Valley or, or Baltimore, this family who decided to go there. So I think there actually are data. We, we just haven't mined it, but right. it, it's funny places like that. Two, two quick questions. One is when you when made me think, Jim, when you said, you know, where do I want to raise my kids? Can is it possible to make any generalizations about the quality of education in these small towns versus some of the bigger cities where there's so much going against the schools and certainly equity and all those kinds of things? It's hard for me to to generalize because, you know, the U.S. has, what, 15,000 school districts and they're also disparate in their funding and everything else. And I think there are places where the poison of national politics is famously seeping down to the local school board level, which is something really to be re resisted. But I, I think that, that the young families that we've seen deciding to move back either places they are from or places they would like their children to be from, whether they can have an educational and life richness for their children, which depends on the school districts, is a very important part of it. So I would think that that, that is if one were having, how can we build it so people will come? That, that's one of those um, crucial elements, again, along with broadband, along probably with the right, healthcare. I think the schools are also just on that list. Yeah. And uh, so a little background on this. During the pandemic, I started joining the weekly Zooms with an economic development group in South Dakota. And so I, I feel like I'm a a native now because it was people from small towns gathering every week for two years talking about their small towns and what what was going on and what they could do and and they were getting big influxes of people one of the main topics they talked about was we want these people to come we, we've got to do better by our schools but that was kind of 
right next door to their, the people are coming because their kids can get a, a saner, healthier, safer, richer, more diverse life in our community. But we got to pay attention to the schools because that's the expectation of the people who are coming, that they're going to want schools that might be better than what we've got already. So right. I think it's, it's a big element of a kind of more textured piece. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the same thing goes for, for teachers where they make decisions of where they're going to go. I have two, two other kind of critical questions, maybe three if we have time. One is, what have been some of the common mistakes you've seen? You know, if somebody's going to try to think big, what should they be careful of? Or I, I think one of them is too short a, a time horizon. I guess the, the, here are the two main things I, I would see as shortfalls. One, again, is a too short of a time horizon of thinking that if this hasn't worked in, in two or three years, then uh, let's just give up because it is going to take longer than that for, for all sorts of reasons. The other is thinking we can be the next X. We're going to be the next, you know, Eastport, Maine. We're going to be the next Ajo, Arizona. We're going to be the next El Dorado, Arkansas, whatever your small town is. The, the ambition as with people is to be the next better version of yourself, of itself, which requires really knowing what it is about that town that would make people interested in coming there. Is it the natural setting? Is it there's a, you know, university nearby, you know, is a possibility for remote work? So I think those are the two main failures we or mistakes, don't you think? Yeah, I think another one is making a plan or getting buy-in from the local citizenry that if somebody comes up with what they think is a good idea and can say, okay, here's how it's going to work, that the resentment and the kind of infighting and the lack of enthusiasm by people in the town who felt that they weren't consulted, they didn't necessarily want to be part of this, it can make the whole thing kind of collapse from the inside. And that, you know, you think like, well, you've got a good idea. Let's just make this work. We'll just convince everyone this is a great idea. But where it seems to be more successful is when you can talk it through from the beginning and, and get the consensus at the very bottom that a town has some kind of values that are important to them and this is how it feeds into it. Or, yeah, they do want to do something for their kids. So should they build a splash pad? Well, We'd like a swimming pool, but we can't afford a swimming pool. So maybe it's a, it, these are these long conversations that go around a, a set of, of desires, but you need to really listen to so many people for it to commit and stick with it and make it work out. Deb is distilling two years worth of South Dakota yeah. conversations in these past two minutes. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. It. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's there's one other thing that fits point that fits into the success versus failure that we've heard a lot, and I think we first heard it in Eastport, Maine, is you don't want the outsiders to come in with their big idea on how to fix something. It's gotta be somebody who is who's really dedicated to this ground and putting their money where their mouth is. You can't be a big factor in change in the town, unless you live here, unless you really get it, unless you're willing to do the dirty work yourself too. If you're in Maine, it can't be somebody from Boston who's going to come in with a big fat checkbook and fix this town. 
they have to prove themselves if they're going to do that, but it's, it needs to really be part of the air they breathe. One of the other questions I had, and this may be more for you, Deb, is like everybody, I've watched downtowns, if not die, go in decline, even in San Francisco or the big prosperous cities, largely because of Amazon and internet commerce. And it's painful to watch this slow, slow death when it's so obvious you know, you go into a big fancy store and there's three people working there and there's one customer, if that. I really worry about downtowns as a vibrant place. And I, I was brainstorming with some people about it. And one guy who is active in water conservation, he said, you know, where is it written that downtown, you know, a community center or the center of a community has to be about commerce and buying things? You know, they're, we're going to have to move into something else. And with all your work on libraries as being community builders, I wonder what thoughts you have on that in terms of missed moments of progress, missed ways of thinking. I, I think that the whole Main Street movements and, and community core movements are at a point where the business development is is one piece of it, but it it's just one piece of it. You hear in these conversations, downtown beautification, building sidewalk structures so old people can walk downtown too. Where are they going to meet? Well, we've got a few buildings that are empty. Who's going to make that into a community center or a senior center? And we want a piece of the history and an expression of who we are in that place. Like we want signs that say, welcome to my hometown with murals next to them. So it's a necessary piece to have have shop local, keep the, the little stores, ha have a reason for more people to be downtown to so they can buy things and do things there. And those places will pay taxes and they'll they'll give donations. You know, it's a, a whole cycle of building the community spirit. But but I think it's even the economic development people realize that they are just a piece of the whole puzzle, but you need all these other p pieces too, to have a, a healthy downtown, a recreational downtown, something for the kids, something for the old people, something that's not judgmental and that lots of different people have reasons to be there, not just to go shopping or to have an office there. This is interesting. So when it comes to local businesses, this is sort of the thought that got me thinking about this issue two years ago when I first started. We actually went out to visit our mutual friend, Bill Whitworth, my wife and I, and had a great time. And during one of our free days, we drove to Helena, Arkansas, which is you know one of the birthplaces of the blues. And I don't know if you know much about that town, but it was once a very vibrant cultural place. The blues were extremely fertile there. And now it's just another bordered up town. And Many of the communities along the way are the same. And it's super, super sad and, and angering. And it's what made me think, my Lord, we, we as a culture have taken vast stretches of this country and just thrown them in the trash. And there are layers of reasons for that. You know, there's the automation and the going overseas and the, you know, lots of that stuff. And, you know, factories closed because they got outcompeted and so on and so on. And often in those communities, it's, you know, it's a one industry town where the big factory drove everything. And 
near Helena. I think it was a tire factory. But what I kept thinking as I was driving around, and I said, I'm driving through this place with all of these resources. There's land, there's timber, there's minerals or rock under the land. And there are people who come from a culture of making things, of knowing what to do with their hands, unlike in cities. And how, why can't we put that together for more local businesses that can outcompete the Walmart or Dollar General that have driven those businesses out? I was doing a post a couple of months ago about a revival downtown in Toledo, Ohio. And they, they were saying that their resource is going to be fresh water, that, no. that you know, they're, they're not making more fresh water and the Great Lakes ha have them. So I, I think that there are some of these sort of historical emptying outs that do not correct themselves. You know, there were a century ago, there were a lot more small cities in the U.S. or small towns than there are now. But Somebody has written about when, by the time you get a settlement of 20 or 25,000 people, it doesn't ever go away. They, they find ways to kind of over time repurpose themselves. When they're smaller than that, some of them find ways to have a future. Some of them do not. And it's, it's sort of a, a harder calculation when you're in the single digit, um, thousands. But I, I think that the, the pandemic may be the beginning of a kind of arbitrage or recalculation of the advantages of less expensive land and fewer of the harassments of big city life and more of the natural resources and all the rest. So I think that, again, the more people call attention to these possibilities, as you are doing now, the greater the chance the possibilities will be realized. Yeah, I, I keep thinking, like, what do these poor communities do about what I would call the Walmart problem? You know, the, the power and cheapness and convenience Amazon's the same, you know, that just is squatting over all of these, these local possibilities. You know, to me, the, if I were a small town planner now, the downtown future will have a smaller proportion of retail outlets than was the case 50 years ago, just because Amazon and Walmart have changed the landscape and they'll have a larger proportion of civic institutions, as you're saying libraries and meeting places and parks and schools and all that, they'll have more gathering places, whether it's um, brew pubs or restaurants or diners or whatever, and more places of using that human desire to be together with a smaller retail component, because just you can't change that that part of, of history. Right. And we've seen that in a lot of places. Yeah. And there are two other interesting models for what we've seen. One is a kind of agreement that two towns came to Dodge City, Kansas and Garden City, Kansas. And Garden City is the one that still has the big box stores. Dodge City doesn't have big box stores anymore. They have little mom and pops shops and they don't look down on each other as much as they used to because it's okay. If I need something at a big box store, I'll go to Garden City. Okay, if I want something interesting or, or unique or a different kind of restaurant, I'm going to Dodge City. So they're only 10 or 12 miles apart, which is like throw a stone in Kansas and you can get from one to the other. But that kind of regional cooperation or collaboration, they're stuck in those themes. Garden City can't get rid of those box stores, but they've, you know, found a way to kind of make a bigger 
living shed with those two towns together. And they did that. They did that in quarter coordination with each other. The, that's a conscious thing. I, I think in loose coordination. Yeah, it, it originated in resentment. Dodge City resented Garden City's big box stores. Garden City resented Dodge City having the Gunsmoke Long Branch, you know, saloon and all that in there. Yeah, um, so they're kind of okay. But they well, they have no. We'll work together. They have a divisional. Yeah, power. that's fascinating. In a lot of these small towns in once again South Dakota, especially during the pandemic. These little mom and pop places couldn't do it. You know, the grocery store couldn't possibly compete. They couldn't get their orders in. Trucks only delivered once a week. During the pandemic, everything in the supply chain got caved in. So they decided to make their own cooperatives. So several small grocery stores would get together and and do their orders together. So they were, you know, small makes themselves big by cooperation, but they're still remaining small. But it, it's a survival tactic. Restaurants, grocery stores, hardware stores, you name it, stores from little communities that were near each other found ways to work together that way. That's very cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Today's guests were Jim and Deborah Fallows. They were interviewed by the Craftsmanship Initiative's Executive Director, Todd Oppenheimer. This episode was produced by me, Chris Igusa. The Falloses were so taken with the creativity they saw during their years of reporting on small communities that they've created an ongoing enterprise called the Our Towns Civic Foundation, where their stories are collected. The foundation, which lives on a website called OurTownsFoundation.org, features their HBO film, excerpts from their book, and new stories that they and their writers continue to discover. And we're excited to announce a partnership with the Our Towns Civic Foundation, so you can expect to see more collaboration and joint projects in the future. You can read and experience more stories about small town revivals and other topics at Craftsmanship Quarterly, a multimedia online magazine about artisans, innovators, and the architecture of excellence. More stories, videos, audio recordings, and resources on craftsmanship can be found at craftsmanship.net. Thank you.